I'm Kelly Coffey, CEO of City National Bank. Our Conversations podcast features in-depth interviews with innovative leaders from business, entertainment, and nonprofits. Listen and learn how to succeed in what I'm calling the next normal. Now is the time to rethink, reinvent, and renew yourself and your business. Hello, everyone. I'm thrilled to be back for a very special edition of the Conversations podcast. Today, we will be speaking with a true entrepreneur and financial professional who's currently the president of Combs Enterprises, where he oversees and advises business operations and investments owned by Sean Love Combs. The diverse portfolio includes spirit brands Sorok Vodka and DeLeon Tequila, media platform Revolt TV, Capital Preparatory Schools, and the Sean John clothing label, which was reacquired in December 2021, just to name a few. He is a graduate of Howard University and Harvard Business School, and he spent time as a senior leader at a very well-known investment management firm. As a true champion of Black excellence, it is my pleasure to welcome Tarek Brooks. Tarek, welcome. Hi, Kelly. Thank you for having me. Great to have you. I really appreciate it. So I want to start with your background because it's really interesting and kind of unusual. You've had a really exciting career. And, you know, from your work at Bridgewater, where you were the COO of account management and trading, and that for everybody who, if you don't know about it, I'm surprised you don't know Bridgewater, but a global investment management firm with about 160 billion plus under management might be more now. And you spent some time developing hospitality ventures. So it'd be great to have you talk just a little bit about your journey of how you how you got to where you are today. Sure, sure. I'd be happy to. Um, as you mentioned in the intro, I, I, I went to Howard University, was actually attracted to Howard because I had heard the story of some of the great alumni who had been through the school. And there was a particular guy who, as a student, would take classes on Tuesdays and Thursdays so that on Monday, Wednesday and Friday, he could take the train from D.C. to New York to work an unpaid internship uh, and then get back to D.C. to go to class. Um, you know, the hint to everybody is that that person is Sean Diddy Combs. Wow. Uh, so, so it was uh, he, he's been an inspiration for me for a long time in my career, but went to Howard, studied business. When I came out, I started my career in strategy consulting primarily because I knew I was attracted to business, but didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. So strategy consulting gives you the opportunity to see uh, a variety of different industries and functions within those industries. And so I found myself drawn to the media and telecom practice, did that for a couple of years, and then went to Black Entertainment Television, uh, which was uh, led by you know legendary entrepreneur and investor uh, Bob Johnson. Uh, so worked at BET for a couple of years, was a part of the team that launched BET.com when media companies were trying to figure out, you know, what the Internet was going to be for them. After a couple of years of doing that, I actually took my chances at a telecom startup in Denver that promptly went bust. And when that <laughs> happened, uh, I went to business school. So I went to Harvard Business School, had a great time there, uh, met some amazing folks. And when I was coming out of business, school, I thought I was going to go right back into media because I had a great time. And was talking to folks at ESPN and MTV and other opportunities. And Bob Johnson reached out and said, look, I'm going to be starting a bunch of new businesses. I think you have what it takes. Are you interested? And so I said, sure, why not? And so ended up spending the next few years of my career with Bob Johnson, working primarily internationally, built businesses in the gaming and nightlife sector in the Caribbean, built a hotel in uh, Liberia, West Africa. It was actually the first hotel developed post a, a long and very, um, you know, very sad uh, civil war, but we built a hotel there and then came back to the States and worked on some financial services um, businesses. 
when I left working for Bob, I took my own individual shot at a startup in Jamaica back in the gaming industry uh, and, and ran into a lot of what folks talk about in small islands around government bureaucracy and, and different things like that. Uh, when that wasn't going the way I thought it would go, that was when I was introduced to Bridgewater. And, and you know, as I'm describing up until that point, I'd never really thought about, you know, working at a hedge fund. Uh, but the more I learned about Bridgewater uh, and its unique culture, uh, it was founded by Ray Dalio, who's also a legendary investor and entrepreneur. I wanted to be in that environment. And, and I would say it gave me a chance to work with some of the sharpest minds I've ever met in my career, learned a lot, took a lot from that culture. Uh, and after a few years, you know, was introduced to Sean Combs by one of my mentors. And he talked about wanting to establish the next stage of his career and his legacy and really build from, you know, his already very successful platform uh, and build things that could help us help our community in meaningful ways. And so uh, when I heard that, I was sold. And so I've been with Sean for just about five years now. Pretty amazing getting to work with one of your inspiring leaders that you were thinking about from college, which absolutely definitely a full circle moment. Yeah. And you've done so many. I want, I want to talk about what you're doing with Sean, but I, you've done so much and, you know, I always hate when I get this question, but I really have to ask you because you've done things that have not gone well. You've done things that have gone incredibly well. You've worked globally. So do you have like big learnings, but also like some mantras you follow or kind of rules of the road that you think about with career? So I would say when I, when I think about career, particularly when, you know, somebody's young in their career, just getting started, is to really not be afraid to take risks, right? Like, I think you have to embrace risk early. And one of the, the, the kind of mantras I use, and it sounds simple and almost silly, but it really is powerful is to say, like, what is the worst that can actually happen when you take a risk, right? And what you find in a lot of situations is the, the, the worst outcome is not you know, death and dismemberment, right? Right, Like, like in, in most cases, you, you will get the opportunity to try again. And if you're young in your career, you have the, you have the chance, the time to take shots that, that may or may not work. You know, most entrepreneurs don't actually make it on their first time. You hear about the, 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 the overnight success story that took 15 years to develop, right? right? Exactly. And that's because there's a lot of trying and failing and learning and growing. And so I would definitely encourage folks to take, to take chances. You know, similarly, you know, I would encourage people to embrace the power of compound interest in ownership, right? Like, as you think about the companies that inspire you, think about owning their stock, right? Think about learning more about them through being an owner and an investor, right? Like, those are things that are, one, invaluable to your development as somebody who's becoming a, a business person. But there's also the opportunity to create real wealth, which down the line, kind of helps you mitigate risk at points, right? When, when, when you've been able to build, you know, wealth for yourself that enables you to take shots, you, you can kind of de-risk some of those opportunities. And I think the last thing I would say, which is, you know, as much about leadership and management as it is about entrepreneurship and career is really invest time wisely in your team. And so as an individual in your career, that team could be your mentors, uh, your peers, your colleagues, your networks, you know, and, and all of the successful people I've met throughout my entire career, I've never met one that didn't have mentors that they relied on. Um, and, and so I think that's a critical, a critical factor. And then as a entrepreneur or, or manager or leader, I would say, you know, the most important bets you make are the people you surround yourself with. So 
you know, spending time wisely to deeply understand people and what they're like and what their strengths are as well as their weaknesses. So you know what you get and that you have people that you can rely on when you are going to, you know, tackle very ambitious goals. Yeah. Those are all great points. The one you made about ownership is really important, right? I love to say kids like, don't just buy a pair of Nikes. If you really love Nikes, buy the stock. Right. And absolutely. Absolutely. I, I just literally set up custodial accounts for my children who are young, that you know, 10 and six. But part of what I'm trying to teach them is, you know, these companies that you care about, Disney and Roblox, these are all companies that you can actually. Uh, and it, as a parent, it's actually a joy to see how excited my daughter is when I say, like, you now own a share of Disney. Like every time somebody watches Encanto, you know, you benefit. Right. Like that, that's a real thing. And, and I think the more people can instill that not only in themselves, but in their children, the better chance you have of, you know, creating real generational wealth, which in my community is incredibly important. When you look at the racial wealth gap and the amount of work that needs to be done to level the playing field, like you you can't put put a dollar value on how important it is to start those things early and really get moving. Especially with the cumulative value. I know that that's true. Anything, um, any big learning in terms of this chapter as an exec? I think part of the power in our partnership and working together is really understanding and embracing, you know, how we're different and how to maximize, you know, his strengths while protecting him from the other things and doing the same thing for myself. Like one of the things is it's a principle that that he has that Ray Dalio also shared that that I that I find just comes up over and over again, right? And that really is, you know, being able to find the most believable, best in class people to help you get the answers to your questions. Um, you know, one of the things Ray would always say is like, as the as the guy who is in the leadership seat or the woman who is the boss, you don't have to have all the answers. You have to be humble enough to, uh, to, to accept the fact that you don't know them and then seek out the people that have the answers. And so part of what we spend a lot of time doing, and it was the same with Bridgewater saying, who is the smartest and sharpest and best expert I can find to help me understand this thing that I don't know about? And for us, with a very diverse portfolio, it's even more important because there's no way in my seat that I'm going to have more expertise than somebody who's going to be who's been doing something their entire career. And so my my goal is to always tap into the experts that can help me make the best decisions I can uh, and help me, you know, effectively utilize the teams I have around me. And one of the things I'm so impressed with Ray Dalio is he the amount of time he spends trying to share his wisdom. I'm reading his new book right now, which is which is quite an endeavor. It's incredible that he's done that. So, so let's talk about the diverse set of businesses you have now a, a bit. So under the Combs Enterprises umbrella, you go from spirits to media to apparel to education. Um, so why don't, why don't you talk a little bit, what are some of the key projects you're working on or issues you're tackling this year? Sure, sure. Yeah, we, we really do have a, a, a pretty diverse portfolio. We kind of think of it as an ecosystem. Because if we are utilizing it right and we're maximizing our value, each entity fits into a thing that works together to create more value. Very, you know, very much a one plus one makes three scenario when we do it right. Um, And so, you know, a part of, you know, my big focus for this year, probably the main focus for this year is really accelerating the the growth we're experiencing across our portfolio. So our spirits brands, Ciroc Vodka and Deleon Tequila, uh, are in aggressive growth. Ciroc is a very interesting story because the over, overall vodka category has been trending down for the last few years, but we've been able to drive Ciroc's growth by staying relevant in culture uh, and, and in positioning it in a way that other brands just aren't able to do. 
Uh, our Deleon tequila brand is growing very fast along with a sector that is growing really fast. And so in, in that situation, it really is about figuring out how to separate ourselves from the rest of the tequila wave while still benefiting from the momentum that the entire category is, is, is feeling. Uh, for Revolt, our media platform, again, growing extremely well, like a lot of media platforms that experienced growth throughout the pandemic. Um, it really is our desire now to make sure we are positioned the right way, which is for us, the transition from people looking at us as Revolt the Cable Network to Revolt the Digital Platform. Because at this point now, our digital business is bigger than our cable business, and the future is, is digital, right, in a lot of ways. And so that's not unique to us. But what's unique to us is being able to create value as one of very few Black-owned media companies. And, and they're really, uh, and you can look at the stats when you look at the amount of media that the African-American community consumes versus the amount of dollars that are going into African-American-owned uh, platforms is staggering. And so for us, that's a big part of our mission to one, you know, communicate that, but then two, capture the value that we should. Um, because, you know, with, with a community that has the spending power that we have, um, that has the impact on culture and society that we have, we need to be able to own our own platforms, communicate our own messages, uh, because that's, again, the way we create wealth throughout our community. So beyond those businesses, we're now kind of reimagining Sean John, right? Like Sean John is a heritage brand that was, you know, an iconic leader in, in the streetwear movement. Um, a lot of people don't know this, but, you know, Sean actually won the CFDA, which is, you know, one of the highest awards somebody in fashion can, can earn. Uh, with Sean John. And so, you know, at, at the time that they sold that business, they believed the acquirer was going to help take it to a, a different level. Like a lot of acquisitions, those things are difficult. And that company fell on some challenging times. And so we had the opportunity to buy it back. And so now the goal is not to recreate the thing that worked in the late 90s and the early 2000s. It is to reimagine what that brand should be for today and for the future. Uh, how does that look? Where do we show up? You know, what does the brand stand for? Who are their consumers now? So a lot of interesting work to kind of re-incubate something that you've kind of owned and built before. And so, you know, our goal is to do nothing less than build that back into a titan in the fashion industry. And so that's exciting. And then we're, we're always looking at new sectors. You know, like there are a lot of sectors that are really promising and interesting. You know, a lot of the things that you hear about in the media, right? Like we're thinking about Web3 like everybody else. That is a great portfolio. It's a fun portfolio. I love how you talk about it as an ecosystem. We have some things we, we do that well, where I think they feed off of each other. And you, I like the sustainable advantage lens that you put on that as well. It, it's amazing to, to, to see it actually play out, right? We'll, we'll have an opportunity where Sean, who is, he will go down in history as one of the best people in business at spotting talent, whether that's, you know, you know, music, talent, acting, whatever it is. You know, we had an instance where he spotted a young comedian that was on Instagram. He thought he was a you know super funny guy. We used him for an ad for our tequila brand. Based on that ad from the tequila brand, Revolt, our TV platform, was able to wrap him into a pitch for a television show that a major brand sponsored that became you know, a huge show for, for the Revolt Television Network. And so, you know, not only did the talent help monetize and grow the tequila business, but he helped grow the, the media business. And so we're able to do that, you know, over and over again through our businesses if, if when we do it right. So let's talk about that because City National was built by entrepreneurs and who nobody else was banking the right way. And so we try to stay true to that. We, we still operate with an entrepreneurial spirit. So how how do you think about that? You're bringing your entrepreneurial spirit to all the businesses you have in that portfolio. 
I think my job really boils down to three or four fundamental things that any entrepreneur needs to be able to do. So there's one, like I've mentioned before, find the best, most talented people I can and then put them in positions where I can empower them. So across our portfolio, you just see super talented leaders that are driving those businesses every day. Then my next job is to make sure they are utilizing our assets to create value every day. And we have one of the most unique assets on the planet in Sean Combs, both in his abilities, his platform, his reach, his network, his resources. We need to make sure that we are, we are actively using those the right way to create value. Then the third piece is, um, back to the point I was making before, utilizing our other, the other elements of our platform you know, in the best ways possible. So I always say to our leaders, you know, the first thing you should be thinking about when there's something you need to do is whether or not there's an opportunity to use something that's already in our platform, right? Like that, that, that should be stop number one. And so my job is to kind of make sure we're extracting those synergies. And then the last piece is really, you know, quarter entrepreneur, that we are taking the right kind of risk, right? So when we think beyond what we're doing, it's never good enough to just stay at status quo. We need to think about what additional risk we should be taking that makes sense. And so putting that those, those opportunities through the right kind of filter to make sure we're taking the risk that put us best in the position to, to, to create value. And so from that perspective, you know, I imagine you could talk to 10 entrepreneurs and they're going to tell you versions of a very similar thing, but that, that really is the crux of it. And I think where, you know, we are unique is because of Sean's profile, a lot of my job is saying no more than saying yes, because we don't have a shortage of opportunities that come our way. Right. But like, you know, it, one of the things that Ray Dalio used to always say is, you know, you can do anything you want, but you can't do everything you want. So you have to really think about and prioritize based on, you know, the the, the kind of risk return trade off and anything you're going to do. It's great. We had uh, in speaking with Eddie Q said uh, we say, Apple, we say no a thousand times to every time we say yes. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. It's but it's hard. Yeah. I mean, look, especially today with the speed that things move. You know, that, that there's always the risk of, of, of FOMO, right? Like the, the, the deal you didn't do, the partnership you didn't make. Um, but, but I think if there is a good framework and that you feel good about and the way you approach opportunities, you can at least sleep at night knowing that, you know, you're making decisions based on a sound process. And, and look, the good or bad, you know, depending on how life plays out, right, you can have a good process and a good outcome, or you can have a good process and a bad outcome. The same way you can have a bad process and a good or bad outcome. So you can't you can't necessarily get overly caught up in any individual outcome. But when you look across the track record, you know if your process is good, you should be generating more good outcomes. And when I look at you know the current success of our portfolio, the the, the success of that we've had with our passive investments, there's something we're doing right with with the process we're running yep. and making. Decisions. Yeah, I can definitely hear the Bridgewater in you. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let's shift to social impact. Can you talk a little bit about the social impact strategy at Combs Enterprises? Sure. I, I think it really comes down to two pieces. There's first, uh, you know, our purely kind of philanthropic work, uh, which really centers around our schools. Uh, we have three charter schools, uh, one in Bridgeport, Connecticut, one in Harlem, New York, and one in the Bronx, New York. These schools serve traditionally kind of underserved communities and children who, in most cases, when they come into our school, were performing kind of below their grade levels. 
And what we're very proud to communicate is that, you know, while we take in kids under these circumstances that, that are very disadvantaged, by the time we graduate these kids, they're not only at their grade level, but we have a track record of graduating 100% of our children into four-year colleges. Which is incredible. Um, when do they start? What grade do you yeah, start? So, so our, our schools start at sixth grade. So the one in Bridgeport has been established the longest. It's, it goes from six to 12. Um, our first, uh, we actually had our first graduating class in Harlem last year, but that, that class ended up being kids that transferred in, um, which, you know, if I could say for a moment, was actually a bit of a testament to the good work we're doing. So during a pandemic, when kids were by and large at home or in some kind of hybrid learning situation, you know, parents and children were willing to trust us with their senior year in high school. And we were able to get those kids into college. This year in June, we'll have the first kind of organic graduating class from Harlem, which is which is a great, uh, you know, a great, a great moment for us. And in the Bronx, we just opened. So we, we just have sixth and seventh grade. And every year we'll add a grade. Uh, to get to that graduation level. So very exciting work happening there. That's where a lot of our, our philanthropic efforts go. You know, Sean is, is very, very committed to education. And, you know, we're also excited because we are now to grow our Harlem school to be able to serve more children. We're going to be moving to a new building, which is going to be a very big deal for us, a historic church uh, in, in Harlem uh, called All Saints. Just an amazing, amazing facility. So the school will get bigger. Uh, based on our ability to have more space to help more children. So very, very exciting there. I think the other side of our social impact really comes from our kind of core principle that is we can help our community through doing good business. And it's something that that Sean has always believed in. Um, and it's something that we try to do. So when we look at efforts like the Our Fair Share effort we built to help get PPP loans to uh, black and brown entrepreneurs, or when you look at the new platform that we announced with Salesforce, that's going to be um, the largest marketplace for Black-owned businesses, there really is a double bottom line expected with those opportunities, right? So with the project itself, for example, our goal is to help address the wealth gap by making it easier for people to support Black-owned businesses and then providing incentives for people on the platform to continue to do that, to circulate dollars through the community by continually um, supporting Black entrepreneurs. And so for us, you know, we see social impact that way. And what we don't want to do is create paradigms where people believe that empowering the Black community is goodwill. Right. It's purely it's just good profit. business. The, the, the kind of red-blooded free market capitalist in me wants to make sure people understand that the better, com better these communities do, the more opportunities there are to serve them with goods and services. And so not unlike anything else, people should look at the current state of the Black community and see an inefficient market. And if you study inefficient markets, you realize that in every inefficient market, there's a profit opportunity. And so in that way, you're doing well by doing good and, and, and helping folks be vibrant members of society. And so we want to make sure through our businesses where we're doing that beyond the kind of purely philanthropic work we do at the schools. I thought the work you did, I think it was fantastic on the launch of our fair share, because one of the things about the paycheck, I mean, we were obviously very involved in paycheck protection program and it was changing every day and the messages, it was, it was a really challenging time and we were in a pandemic and we were all working from home, <laughs> but it was really valuable. And so, you know, that, that gap that you filled, right? You, you know, you talk about the trust gap of how how you help with access. I'd love you to talk a little bit more about that because I think that'd be interesting to people. Yeah, one of the things that we recognized very early 
was that the African-American community was going to be disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. And we saw that on two fronts. We saw that in health outcomes, because unfortunately, we are disproportionately impacted by either jobs that keep us on the front line or pre-existing conditions that made us more vulnerable. And, you know, that played out kind of how we thought it would. We also knew that we would be disproportionately impacted from a wealth perspective, too, because our businesses tend to be undercapitalized and have weaker relationships with financial institutions. And so we went into the pandemic unprepared for an economic shock. And that's exactly what a pandemic is and an economic shock. And so we knew that was going to happen. And so when the first wave of PPP loans went out and we saw that the, the rates of minorities getting loans from big banks were abysmal, we knew we had to act. And, and one of the things that I am really proud of and, and, and my relationship with Sean and Combs Enterprises as a company is once we recognized the opportunity, there was no question about whether we were going to do something that was what we were going to do. And so we realized we didn't have the core capabilities as lenders to, to be able to jump in there in a meaningful way and impact that way. But what we did have was the trust that comes along with Sean's brand. And so we very quickly stood up a platform and made relationships with, with great lenders. We worked with PayPal and Square and JP Morgan and others um, and, and basically created a window to say, let's first educate people about this opportunity. This is what PPP is. This is why you should be pursuing this. It's important. It's available to you. And then secondly, once you commit to doing it, here are lenders who are going to help. So irrespective of whether you've been turned down by other banks, um, these folks have committed to working with you through the process. And so I think our ability to bridge that lack of trust helped funnel people to lenders who were willing to lend to them. And what we found is that across the vast majority of our lenders, we were the most efficient pipeline to Black businesses. And we were you know, later written up by the Milken Institute and others as an example of how, how important intermediaries are if you want to get to historically underserved communities, like you shouldn't believe like you're just going to be able to do it yourself, because I think it under underestimates the impact of that that trust and relationship gap that exists. And so from that perspective, it, we, we felt really proud about what we were able to do. We were able to get lots of folks, you know, loans that enable them to fight another day. Uh, and part of what we realized in that process is and again, the data shows this, but it's, it's one thing when you see it up close and personal, you know, 96 percent of black owned businesses you know, our single person shops or only have one employee. So these are tiny shops. So when you saw in the wake of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, this kind of urge for a lot of businesses, particularly in tech to say, we're going to start this growth equity fund for black owned businesses, right? In spirit, it's amazing because black tech entrepreneurs should get capital the way anybody else does. And, and we don't right now. I think black founders get 1% of VC capital. So huge gap there. But the practical reality is growth equity capital is going to only help the tip of the iceberg, right? Like those businesses that, that have the potential to be 100x businesses. 96% of the businesses are mom and pop shops in local neighborhoods that are important employers in their community and important service providers and goods providers. But they're never going to be that 100x opportunity that a growth equity fund is going to serve. So for us, the Our Fair Share experience help give us a better window into what that community really looks like and what they really need. So as we think about the future, 
you know, we, we, we have a pulse on that community that we feel like could be impactful, you know, and working with the right partners to figure out, you know, opportunities to serve that community better. Other gaps to fill. And I think other gaps you saw in terms of how you're thinking about elevating the next generation of entrepreneurs. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, like you, you can pick your gap and it's there, right? Like there, there is the access to capital gap, the access to information gap, the access to technology gap. These are all real things that played out for the people that, that we were working with. Like, and we saw it real time because these were smaller shops trying to figure out, you know, how they were going to get the information to get the application in. You know, some folks, you know, they, we had to make sure it was easily accessible, just via a mobile phone. It didn't require, you know, you know, a desktop or a laptop. You know, we thought about those level of things because those were real impediments to to people getting access to PPP. Like, and, and I'm sure the great folks at the SBA and the government thought PPP was as easy as it could be. Like, like, the, like they, in their view, like they couldn't make it easier. But when you actually got in with these folks and you realized how much technical assistance they needed to get it done, it really helps you understand why these gaps that have existed for so long, you know, largely built on systematic issues that have existed for hundreds of years, um, are not going to go away unless there's a really concerted, focused effort to kind of close those gaps and bridge the divides that that continue to exist. But I feel like what an incredible learning experience for everybody. I mean, I think there was the pandemic was awful, but there were a lot of interesting learnings that came out of it that I hope were able to mobilize. And clearly you are. And others, I hope, mobilize around. No, I, I think it's exactly right. I mean, even like simple things about the way we think about offices and which, what value they provide and how we use them and what they need to be for employees and, and, you know, productivity, you know, the way people think about, you know, mental health as it relates to their jobs. Like there are all these things that people weren't thinking about. Um, and, and I hope that, that, you know, through some of the pain, people understand like the, the, the gap that certainly exists between communities that have been historically underserved and those that have not like the the real reality is that the pandemic was a phenomenal opportunity for wealthy people to get much wealthier and 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 for those that were on the other side of that um the situation is much bleaker so when you know in 2019 the research came out and said that the wealth gap was huge right so if if the average black white family has net worth of one hundred and seventy one thousand dollars the average black family had a net worth of $17,000, 10X gap, right? The projection was that the average black household was on a path to zero net worth by 2050. The pandemic only accelerated that, right? Like it only accelerated that decline, that path that way. And so I think from that perspective, people really need to open eyes because, you know, as you'll read in Ray's book, when that gap, between the wealthy and less wealthy gets too big, that's where bad things tend to happen. And you see it throughout history over and over again in different countries around the world. And so solving that thing is a societal problem we should all embrace because it's going to help us all long term. Absolutely. So are you celebrating or how are you celebrating Black History Month at the Capital Prep Schools? <laughs> well, you know, at Combs Enterprises, we make Black History every day. <laughs> every day. So it doesn't have to be so, a special so, month. I love that. So, so, so we, 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 we try our best every day to make sure we think about the legacy impact of everything we do, right? And so you think about the amount of places where you know, Sean Combs has been able to blaze trails, you know, across, you know, spirits and music, media and all the other things we do. And really, like our goal with our schools is to make sure we are being as available to them as possible. 
right? To make sure we're transferring the, the knowledge, the lessons that we've learned to the school and, and empowering school. Like right now for us, you know, it, it really is making sure we are equipping those seniors who are graduating college to, 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 to have the most successful application season possible. You know, I, I am telling Dr. Steve Perry, who runs our school every day, if there are a kid who even thinks about Howard University, please let me know. Like, <laughs> let's get on the Zoom. Let's have that conversation. And so it is very intimate that way. You know, in addition to kind of serving on the school's board, it is very intimate kind of one-on-one engagement, you know, versus big kind of programming. You know, we, we, we make sure we keep it personal because those kids need to see the executives like Homes Enterprises. They need to see that these outcomes are possible for them if they put their effort in. So, I love that. That's exactly right. I was on the board of a charter school in New York for many, many, 15 years, Kip, and it just, you see the difference that it makes. So, And I'm sure it's the same way, right? Like people needed to see a woman executive finance that to, to know that was possible because depending on your circumstance, you might not know that's a real thing that exists, that that's a real possibility for you. And it's a lot of fun to go hang out with them too in school. Incredible. So let's look ahead a little bit. So we talked, we talked about the Sean John clothing brand that was exciting that you were able to repurchase last year. Are there any new exciting releases from the brand that you want to unveil here for 2022? So it is early. So, so, so the deal closed uh, at the end of December. And so we are right now in the assess, stabilize and plan phase, because again, for us, what we do will more than likely not be a continuation of what was happening. It will be kind of reimagining and repositioning of the brand. And so we're taking our time to be very thoughtful about what that needs to look like. You know, we have the luxury of not needing to kind of rush that. Like we want to be very thoughtful and that, and that, that leaves the room for Sean to get fully engaged and be as creative as he can be to develop the brand in a way that makes sense. And so, you know, we're excited to spend, you know, a lot of time doing that work, putting in the groundwork, talking to the folks who've been driving fashion and streetwear over the 10 years that we haven't been in it so that we make sure we come back in the way that makes the most sense. So, so th- th- there, there will be fun stuff when it's time, but we're, but we're not going to rush. I cannot wait to see what you do. I know it's going to be fabulous. Absolutely. So the onset we talked a bit about, we did talk about your advice to up and coming execs a bit in terms of taking risk, um, particularly in business. Any any advice that you would say different about, you, know, you really are influencing pop culture in so many ways. Any advice that you would say is different for pop culture? I mean, how that happens? I think there's really two things that I, I would think about. It is very easy in pop culture to think about the immediate return, right? Like the immediate dopamine rush, right? Like how many views, how many impressions, how many likes, you know, how many streams. Uh, It's very easy to kind of fall into that trap because in a similar way to like, you know, public companies, like the the quarterly numbers become the thing if you don't figure out how to take a step back and get above it and look longer term. And so I think as you think about, or as we think about, we, you know, pop culture impact and our impact on society, we try to think about a longer lens. You know, we try to think about, you know, five, 10 years from now, what's going to be important, right? So even as we think about a thing, like an example I could use is how we are approaching kind of Web3 and everything that's developing. Part of what we're already thinking about is what we can do to ensure that the African-American community, you know, goes from being early adopters and loyal consumers to owners and creators, Right. Like it it is not enough for us 
to just utilize this technology and this wave of development to only enable our community to be great customers, right? And the pattern, if you look at the patterns that happens, right? You look at this, this wave of social media, you look at mobile phone adoption, you look at, you know, cable television. In every one of those instances, you see the black community are phenomenal customers, but own very little. And so as we think about it, we're, we're already thinking about how we set up frameworks to enable, you know, our people to, um, you know, be more impactful creators and ultimately be um, more wealthy owners. And, and, and so that, that, that comes from our willingness to not just think about, you know, the current steps and, and, and what's right in front of us. Um, and then I think the other thing I would say is for anybody, not just in pop culture, but for, for anybody thinking about what impact they're going to have in the world. I think too many of us spend our time thinking about bullets or lines that they can add on the resume versus bullets or lines that are going to be added in the eulogy. And, and, I, and I would I would encourage people to try to build a you know, build the criteria for a great eulogy and the resume will take care of itself. That's really good. What about advice you give your younger self? Does that overlap? <laughs> I think it does overlap. You know, when I think about how I've always thought about making career decisions and, and, and how I've made life decisions, you know, I don't think I would tell my younger self to change. I, I had a very simple view, which is to say, you know, at some point I'm going to die. And when I'm going to die, I'm going to be face to face with God. And all I want to be able to say is I did everything I could with everything you gave me. And that's it. And so, like, when I think about how I make decisions and how I've made choices and my willingness to take some risks that other people weren't willing to make, it was all with that in mind. I want to be able to be sure, like, I left it all on the table. Um, and, and so I would I would tell my younger self that was the right thing. And I also say buy Apple and Amazon. (laughs) (laughs) That is a fabulous way to end this. So thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. We hope you'll subscribe to Conversations so you'll never miss an episode. We have lots of great guests this season who will inform and inspire you. 